0: Welcome to Reformed Rakes, a historical romance podcast that faked its own death only to return as a martianess. I'm Emma, a law librarian writing about justice and romance at the Substack Restorative Romance. I'm Beth, and I'm on book Talk under the name Beth Heyman Reads.
1: My name is Chels. I'm the writer of the romance Substack The Loose Cravat, a romance book collector, and a book talker under the username Chels underscore ebooks.
0: And today we're going to be talking about Unmasked by the Marquess, which is the first in the Regency Imposter series by Kat Sebastian. Published in 2018, we follow a romance between the titular Marquess, Alistair De Lacey, and Mr. Robert Selby. As quick repartee and lingering glances turn into something more, Alistair discovers Robert Selby's secret that Robert Selby was born Charity Church. She took on the Robert Selby persona first to attend Cambridge at the original Robert Selby's insistence, and then later to provide for Robert's sister, Louisa's future. Charity, in the guise of Robert and Louisa, attends London for Louisa's first season, hoping her beauty will draw someone to secure her financial future. Then Charity will let the estate pass to the rightful heir. On the surface, this story reads as a woman dressing as a man for good, if not entirely legal reasons. Sebastian explores beyond this initial setup into Charity's genuine self. When she discloses to Alistair her status as a foundling, he replies she's like a changeling, a fairy left in place of a human child. She thinks to herself, a changeling. She liked the sound of that, as silly as it was. She had been in between for so long. Neither man nor woman, neither servant nor gentlefolk, neither fraud nor honest." Alistair, for his part, is pretty settled in his sexuality. A long-time bachelor, he is comfortable articulating attraction to both men and women, assuming that he would marry someday. His quandary centers on the precarious nature of his wealth and position, especially if he falls for charity as Robert. He has had to work hard to make his estate profitable, which was in debt when he took over the position. While Alistair and Charity fall quickly, they can't just be together. Alistair refuses to call Charity his mistress for his own reasons, and Charity doesn't want to give up who she is as Robert Selby. Plus, there's an ever-looming threat Louisa could come under fire for her complicity in the fraud. So how did everyone hear about this book? Was it from (laughs) Chell's?
2: Maybe kind of from Chels. I don't even know when Cat Sebastian came into my orbit. (laughs) Although she's pretty popular on... uh, She's a pretty popular author. I don't want to give TikTok the claim.
0: (laughs) I feel like I... This is my first Cat Sebastian book, but I feel like I've known her books because she consistently has really good covers. Mm -hmm. Like her covers are always very compelling and they have some of... Even my favorite like illustrated covers, I think like the Marion Hayes has a really cute illustrated cover. So I I like that they're they're very dynamic. So I was very aware of the covers even before I read this book, but probably from Chels. (laughs) (laughs) I heard
1: about it from me as well. (laughs) (laughs) I think I just got it from my library in like 2020. I got The Soldier Scoundrel and kept reading because they're all very good.
2: Mm -hmm. Okay, we shouldn't dive too deep into a discussion. I feel like we could, but I (laughs) will recount the plot so everyone can be on the same page. Alistair DeLacy receives a visit from his late father's mistress, Mrs. Allenby. She asks Alistair to invite her oldest daughter, his half-sister, to a few dinners to aid in her coming out, now that she's 18. Alistair is reluctant to help since he doesn't want to acknowledge Amelia as a relation and quips if he acknowledged every one of his father's bastards, he'd have to start a charity. Mrs. Allenby gathers Alistair won't help, so she leaves. His determination to save the family name and money guides him. The same day, Alistair receives a call from Mr. Robert Selby. He and his sister Louisa have recently come into town for Louisa's first season. Robert says Alistair's father had been Louisa's godfather. While Robert made connections at Cambridge, they can't help. Alistair, unsurprisingly, turns Robert away. As the narrative turns to Robert's point of view, we learn Robert is actually Charity. She's disguised herself as Robert to ensure Louisa marries well. Charity thinks about Robbie... first Robert Selby, and how she's grown increasingly uncomfortable with using his name despite having permission to use it. While at walking, Alistair argues with his younger brother Gilbert. He wants him to join the clergy and then take a rectory in Kent. Gilbert stops mid-argument when he spots Louisa, whose bonnet has conveniently flown off and attracted the notice of several gentlemen. They approach and Alistair announces he's changed his mind and he'll throw a ball for Louisa. Charity suspects murky intentions, yet goes along with the plan. Alistair wants Louisa's beauty to distract all the gentlemen, who then would ignore his sister Amelia, who he plans to invite. At the ball, Alistair memorizes Charity's laugh, noticing how charming she is. Alistair realizes in his pettiness to Mrs. Allenby, he's tied his name to the Selby's. Charity goes to a gentleman's club with Alistair. After arriving home, Louisa asks Charity what she'll do after Louisa marries. Charity lies, saying she'll live at the gamekeeper's cottage at Fenshaw, their estate. Fenshaw would pass to Clifton, the real Robert Selby's cousin. Charity had attended Cambridge at Robert's insistence and name, so when he died, Charity kept the name to keep Louisa from destitution. Their butler, Keating, and Louisa's great aunt, Agatha. No charity secret. Charity and Louisa befriend Gilbert and Amelia Allenby. Gilbert and Louisa have a mutual interest in agriculture. Alistair visits and meets their aunt. During this visit, he says Charity doesn't seem like a Robert and calls her Robin. Just as a little side note to everyone listening, at this point, I'm going to call Robert slash Charity by the name of Robin. They grow closer, have a few moments. The cousin who's said to inherit, Clifton, finds Robin, who's with Alistair, at the park. Alistair leaves, and Robin tells Clifton they're in town for Louis's season. Clifton says he scarcely recognizes Robin, known to him as Robert. In a conversation with Lisa later, Robin worries about Clifton's presence in town. She walks to Alistair's place. He reads to her and they kiss. Robin stops him because she's aware he's kissing her because he thinks she's a man. While Alistair agonizes over writing Robin a note, his solicitor says it's not possible for Alistair's father to be Louise's godfather. Alistair confronts Robin about this, and she tells him everything. Alistair doesn't take it well, and Robin leaves, crying. He doesn't care about Robin's gender, rather dislikes the fraud. Eventually, though, he decides revenge is beneath him. He tells her this as they duck out to the gardens at a ball. Robin reveals she started as a maid at Fenshaw, practically raising Louisa. They kiss, and then Robin slips away. Mrs. Allenby hosts a salon which Alistair and Robin attend. They leave together and have sex at Alistair's house. Afterwards, Robin asks if he regrets it because she's a fraud and a foundling. He admits he doesn't know what the right choice would have been. So no, she's not a fraud and she's a changeling, not a foundling. Six days later, Robin still hasn't heard from Alistair. Gilbert has proposed to Louisa and Robin tells her something's going on between her and Alistair. Alistair returns to London and calls on Robin. They have sex again and Alistair proposes. Robin says no, asking what would happen to Robert Selby. Alistair suggests faking a boating accident. She still rejects him and says he'd be ashamed of her and everyone in society would laugh at him. She leaves. Like any sensible person, Alistair gets drunk and tells his brother a marriage proposal happened at the Selby house and it was rejected. Gilbert thinks Alistair proposed to Louisa. When Robin wakes up, she discovers Louisa has eloped. She chases after them so Louisa doesn't feel guilty about having to elope not to oppose it, and discovers a broken carriage with an injured Louisa and Gilbert inside. They impose on some farmers and Alistair catches up with them as well. He and Gilbert clear up the miscommunication. There are some more conversations between Alistair and Robin, but eventually Alistair's solicitor tells him Robin's already married. Alistair asks Robin why she hid Robert Selby's death when as Robert's widow, she would inherit a 1,000 pounds. Robin replies Louisa would have gotten nothing, And even if she had kept the money, living on 40 pounds of interest would have done nothing for Louisa. Besides, the initial deception had happened two years prior to Robert's death, where he asked Robin to go to Cambridge in his stead. Alistair proposes again, and Robin refuses, because she doesn't want to expose Louisa. Robin accompanies Louisa and Gilbert to Scotland without Alistair. Even though Robin could sign for Louisa's marriage as her guardian, she wants to ensure the marriage won't be exposed to any fraud. She goes on to Fenshaw after they get to Scotland. Alistair returns home and gives each of his half-sisters 3,000 pounds. Back at Fenshaw, Clifton, the cousin, overhears Keating and Robin talking and demands Robin fake Robert Selby's death so he can inherit. Robin complies. News of Robert Selby's death by boating accident reaches London. Alistair realizes Robin's done away with her disguise. She returns to London and introduces herself as Mrs. Selby, Alistair proposes to her again, saying he'll weather any scandal. Robin Selby, soon to be Robin DeLacy, dresses vaguely like a pirate. The end.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I definitely want to talk about Robin's name. So names in general in historical romance carry so much weight. For example, there's that moment where characters shift to using each other's first names, which signals that their relationship has progressed. Robin is not just a first name, it's a nickname just for her. There's the gender and identity aspect to it. Charity isn't Charity really, because she felt like she left that life behind. But she's not Robert, because Robbie is a person she knew and loved. So she's Robin. It's an androgynous name that fits her very well. And it's even better that Alistair gave it to her before he knew she wasn't
0: really Robert. Yeah, the name is so great. And there's a moment I love especially where uh, Alistair tries to go back to a more formal, like to sort of do uh, an injury to her. He he tries to call her Miss Church to try and make things more formal. She's like, I, have, I haven't I have been Miss Church ever. Like, because I was a servant. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, that's, she totally has this reaction where it's like, Alistair doesn't have the option to be more formal with her. It's because, because he gives her this nickname of Robin. There's like this forced intimacy between them because she takes to this name so immediately. And it's like she hadn't really considered this as an option before. You're really sort of watching her play into this like androgynous in-between name that she's always thought of herself as playing at Robert, that when she's able to be in this sort of like non-binary identity of Robin – that really like suits her. And so she has this very like almost like violent reaction to him trying to proceed into formality and her sort of exclusively female identity of Miss Church. It's very, it's a good play on that, that linear progression that we expect in historical romance.
1: That's such a good point that like the reason that Robert Selby felt so off a little bit was because it was Robert Selby and it's not necessarily because Robin is play acting in the way that she is comfortable with. Like she uh, has her own kind of unique style and her unique desires that kind of like fit a little bit better with Robert Selby than they did with Charity Church, but neither of them are really her.
2: Yeah, there's this thing in fantasy books that happens that I kind of like a common theme is the power of names. I think in Ursula K. Le Guin's Wizard of Earthsea series, it's kind of like a more prominent theme that shows up. So it's just a kind of something that it was something that came up while I was reading this book that I thought of the power of names. It can establish an identity, establish a relationship between that person, like even outside of kind of a fantastical setting. There is still a lot of power behind names and what they mean to us or what they denote. Absolutely.
0: Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, that's I'm I, <laughs> yeah. it it, I think it makes sense that it's like the, because I, I guess most of the, what we're getting on Robin's side of her POV is this like working through her identity. And I just love that it's like she's, she's working, that's what she's working through like in process as the book is going on. She doesn't come at the beginning of the book thinking like I'm between a man and a woman that and it's like the the name is sort of the thing that almost like sparks that because I think she was thinking of Robert Selby as this identity she was taking on and had like an end date and I think she really struggles to think of like what her life is afterwards like she lies to Louisa about what her vision is she doesn't have an idea of what comes after Robert Selby but she knows that it's not quite right and that really takes up the most of the her POV, while I think Alistair's POV really focuses on more on the relationship, I felt like we spent more time with him processing the decisions about the relationship, while Robbins is mostly about her identity. And I think that taking on the name is sort of the, what spurs that.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a good assessment. Yeah, it it is really important to me that Alistair gave Robin the nickname before he realized her duplicity. I think Part of it is proprietary. Like he often thinks that he wants something of Robin for his own. So he creates this unique intimacy with the nickname, kind of like as you mentioned. But he also tells her that he thinks it fits. There's a part of him that speaks to a part of her that she hasn't quite revealed yet. Uh, He knows she's special, that she blooms in company, uh, hence the springtime reference.
2: So we've talked a bit about... Robin and the importance of finding her name but I wanted to touch on Alistair and his desire to improve his family name since his father quote tarnished the name through cards, horses, women, bad investments. So at the beginning of the book Alistair defines himself in opposition to who his father is and this is his motivation which creates the perfect conflict in the face of marrying someone like Robin her class in history alone would create a scandal, um, but I think, or his initial solution is to hide out in the country, which wouldn't work based on who Robin is. I think we'll touch on that more later, and we see how much he's changed by the end of the book by how he reacts to his aunts. Like they are getting after him for settling money on the Allenby sisters, and he counters that pretty pretty well he sees that family is more important than how how people perceive their family that's what he's come to value
0: yeah there's and the big decision to be made by Alistair is like what do you use this like reputation and name for because mm-hmm. um, again kind of like Robin he doesn't exactly have a vision for it he he thinks like i have to do this because my father couldn't but then also he realizes his father actually did set up his daughters yeah to some success. Like, even though he was a spendthrift and wasted all this money, like they're not impoverished at the beginning of the novel. They don't actually have entry into the tawn that Alistair can give them. But they're not, he he his father was able to give them some money to live on. And so he realizes that his father, even though he did things differently, is still ensuring a legacy, just a different legacy than Alistair envisioned for his family. And then Alistair's big realization is, like, like why why have this title? Why have this good reputation if I can't use it to be with the person that I love? Like, I'm going to throw my weight around. I'm going to throw my money around in order to make sure that Robin is accepted, at least by part of society. Mm-hmm. And he knows that some people won't accept them. And some people will just give them the cut direct. But, like, they get to be together and they're going to have their family. And they're going to have the people that want to wanna be around them. And also, some people are still intimidated by his title. Like, he's yeah. still so pretty powerful. So that he, he sort of has that like future vision all of a sudden because Robin enters his life.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It kind of like, what are you building all this capital in your name for if you're not going to use it? It kind of makes me think of rich people who don't need money, yet they just like keep working. because <laughs> like I'm like, what? And they just have no time, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, you're just working and working. You have all this money. What's it for? Kind of the same with Alistair. You Build all this equity in your name. It's kind of going to come in handy when you marry someone like Robin and you do need to weather that scandal with her. So,
1: yeah. And uh, so he's kind of like cordoned off his half sisters, too, mm-hmm. as like they're not they obviously don't have the same last name, but they're he doesn't even really see them as his family at the for most of the book, I would say. Uh, So he's got them kind of like sectioned off into a different like mental category than he does his brother Gilbert. But like something that um, is kind of really sad is that he kind of has this realization, I think midway through the book, that like he and his brother aren't really that close or as close so like the the esteemed family unit uh Mm -hmm. which is just him and gilbert basically at this point it's just it's really just him it's like he's a lonely man on a hill
0: gilbert is also the one to point out that his that alistair's mother was not nearly as offended by Mm -hmm. their father's behavior as alistair was and i think that's a Alistair has to go through this process of like am I actually I'm defending something that's like is like a phantom like my mother is dead she also didn't seem to care about my father's affairs she lived a happy life um and it's like Alistair has been like outsourcing this anger where it's like actually he has to sort of own up to it and and take it on as part of his own personality this resentment he has towards his father and that I think that distance is that's one of the things that's causing distance between him and Gilbert is that Gilbert just kind of wants to move on like he takes up with the Allenby sisters pretty easily and is becoming closer with them much faster than Alistair and Alistair just has to own that like he's kind of difficult and maybe is holding on to grudges that um he could let go yeah
2: (laughs) I think this would be a good transition to
0: the like the family section since we're already kind of like talking about family Robin and Alistair approach family in opposite ways while both act as heads of their family Alistair struggles to acknowledge his half-sisters and their mother. This has more to do with Alistair's feeling about his father, and he sees them as a product of his father's worst behaviors. What kicks off the book is Alistair wanting to stick it to Mrs. Allenby. By the end of the book, Alistair acknowledges his sisters and settles 3,000 pounds apiece on them. In contrast, Robin lives solely for Louisa, doing everything she can to promote her interests and sacrificing a lot. Then, by the end, she finds a life and identity of her own. How do you see these as parallel journeys?
1: I see it as Robin bringing Alistair into the fold. So Robin and Louisa are family, and Robin loves Louisa. So she does everything in her power to keep Louisa safe and happy and to ensure that she's a good life. Uh, Robin is sacrificing the 1,000 pounds, and that's like money that she would have gotten as Robert Selby's widow had she not committed the fraud. She would have gotten 1,000 pounds to continue this ruse with Louisa, but she also gets to keep living as Robert Selby, which even when she had to do that in isolation, was preferable to her life as charity church. Louisa and Robin are family by marriage, but there's also a little bit of a found family aspect to it, too. So Alistair pursues Robin, he invites her to clubs, shows up at balls he wouldn't otherwise attend, and then makes excuses to give her gifts. But you see Robin sort of adopt him as family early on too. So when Louisa and Gilbert criticize Alistair, Robin gets huffy about Gilbert not having a job and being grateful for what Alistair has provided. This feels a bit incongruous with the Robin that we know, who has been amused by Alistair, but also very critical of him. At this point, she's sort of taken ownership of him and started being proprietary in return.
2: I like what you said. I think one of my favorite character arcs is when characters influence each other positively, and that's kind of what's happened between Robin and Alistair. And we've already touched on this. Um, Alistair's concern for his family name and how it plays out with him distancing his sisters, how Gilberts actually doesn't care, and it's kind of something more that... Alistair focuses on because he's concerned about appearances and his own anger towards his father. But I think this is a really good starting place for him because by the end, as I mentioned before, when his aunt challenges him on what he's done, settling money on the Allen B's, he speaks about quote brotherly love and filial respect as worthy standards. And I think Alistair influences Robin too, where he questions her on what she wants I think it's great that she does so much for Louisa, but Louisa's approaching marriage and coming into herself and Robin should kind of focus more on promoting her own happiness.
1: It does feel like, uh, I mean, Louisa is also extremely young and you can kind of tell that like she has that like single minded focus of, um, well, I don't want to say that. That's a little bit uncharitable because she does uh, She does think of Robin and Robin's well-being. But like, yeah. I'm thinking specifically of like the moment where they steal off to get married in secret and then Robin ends up being drugged, yes. which wasn't her idea. But like, I feel like Louisa could probably just tell Robin.
2: <laughs> yeah, she could have been like, point. peace, I'm going <laughs> off with this guy to get married. And Robin would have been like, okay, have fun. Scotland's a good (laughs) idea, actually.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and in context with Robin and the Allenbees, I think that's also another, like, frame of influence because Robin becomes close with the Allenbees much earlier than Alistair as well. I mean, that's actually, like, a point of contention because Alistair is thinking, like, is Robin, like, courting Amelia Allenby because they seem to, like, get along so well? Mm -hmm. And so while Alistair is still thinking that Amelia Allenby must be sort of this ridiculous young woman, he sort of has to have like a better faith interpretation of like what she's like because it's like robin and amelia get along so well and i like robin so much amelia must have like some value um even though she's an alibi sister so that closeness i think also just opens up the option for alistair to think more favorably about the new members of his family maybe even more than gilbert taking them on because alistair's so predisposed to think well of what robin thinks about things because he's so enamored so immediately
1: and he also shows up at the Allenbees like way before he's cool with them in order to see Robin, which is something that I think is very interesting. Like I, you just want to get him there. Like you want to get him to that point where you're just like, okay, so you can kind of see, right? Like you're you're comfortable being here for your own purposes. Maybe you should see that they are too.
0: In the Allenbees, like both the mother and Amelia. Sort of like discover that um, Alistair has like feelings for Robin before they really understand Robin's like identity, mm-hmm. and they're totally fine with it. They're like, we do. We mostly want you to help Amelia. Like whatever you need to do. Like as far as like your identity, your sexuality, we can all tell that you love Robin, <laughs> and we're fine with it because they're they know that they're indebted to him. Sort of. I think it's a good example of the deference that certain people are going to have to his power, mm-hmm. whereas some people might say that's like not historically accurate. Like yeah, but like the Allenbees are much more interested in his like sort of social currency and actual like literal currency than they are like catching him out in like a sexuality lie because that's there's no advantage for them for that. Also, I think they generally do care about him. It's not totally um, even a selfish interpretation. They're
2: so kind when they think everyone thinks Robin is dead and they mm-hmm. they come to Alistair and they're, and they're just like, H- how are you? <laughs> you know, we know you cared about you know Robin Robert a lot. So I always thought I like that part. I think you're right. It's they've got, they're smart. They know it's better to, to trade on the social currency he can offer, but it's not entirely without feeling.
1: So I liked that. Mm. I thought that was um, so funny when Alistair was just like, Robin's not dead. And they're like, oh, you poor <laughs> oh. thing. are <laughs> like, oh, "No, always oh, in denial. <laughs>
0: <laughs> She's really not. Like you don't understand there's so many layers to like the deception that I put into her mind. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I did um I really was quite um I was really I'm really enamored of all the miscommunication that happens in this book because every single time it's very funny. Like mm-hmm. the the part with the Allenby B um mm-hmm. Mrs. Allenby and Amelia comforting Alistair when Alistair is just kind of like kind of like upset about his relationship but not about a death there's a little few comical moments there and then there's also that miscommunication between Louisa and Gilbert where they think that Alistair is gonna force Louisa into a marriage yeah (laughs) and that's why they end up eloping because they think that um because like uh Gilbert approaches Alistair and he's like why, why didn't you even ask Louisa for permission? <laughs> and Alistair is like, why would I ask Louisa? What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> Louisa has nothing to do with this. And so in Gilbert's mind, he's he's like, oh my gosh, Alistair is gonna marry Louisa and he doesn't even care what she thinks about being married to him.
2: Yeah, I'm a huge fan of what Gilbert does. Um, the lot <laughs> it's logical. I'm like, my older <laughs> brother said that a marriage proposal happened at the Selby house. He doesn't care about Louisa. We got to make a run for it. Like.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it's also like it's, it's such a good example of like the, the limitations of dual POV because you think about like in both like Alistair and Robin's mind, they have all the information. But they, neither of them realize like how weird they've been acting. And this is sort of what Gilbert's reaction is at the farmhouse. It's like, dude, you were being so weird. Like I don't think you like Louisa, but like what else was I supposed to think? There's only one young woman at the house and you've been like weirdly obsessed with the Selvies for weeks? Like yeah. what am I supposed to <laughs> how am I supposed to react? And Alistair's like, Oh yeah, like I, I see it now that you I you're telling me the information. But his perspective is so limited because he's so focused on Robin. Yeah. So
1: focused on Robin.
2: (laughs) Um, I think it's a good point to transition to talking about fraud. If everyone needs to (laughs) scroll up to that point in the Google talk. (laughs) Uh, I will say this. Emma tweeted it and I thought it was hilarious. Is property fraud the most romantic crime? Yes, obviously.
0: Why is that, I do think I do think fraud is romantic. And I think it's because property is so unromantic. Um, <laughs> historical romance, often you have this like property question. Like, what who is going to have, what, what house are they going to live in? Right. Who's going to inherit? And this is one of the reasons that I love historicals so much. It's because the happily ever afters have to be believably multivalent. So you can't, like, romance cannot overcome everything. Mm-hmm. Because these people have to have a place to live. And, like, the economics of wherever the, the, it's set we have to believe that they are either working or have an estate to live off of and it just the actual romance is not the only thing that needs to be solved there has to be the the propriety and the duty and someone we have to figure out where the money's coming from so i think these economic factors and societal factors actually do probably affect real world romance now more than we might imagine but something about the depiction in historical romance is more believable and so i think i think most relationships are, are are in real life are also multivalent but we have to in historical settings it's we buy it more where someone is worried about the society pressure also sort of this fraud i find very charming because it's just believable in historical settings because we have this like pre-internet and pre-paper trail like it, i think it would be hard to pull off a lot of these fraud plots in a contemporary romance because people would discover it really easily like why does the the cousin not recognize robin so they hasn't seen him in decades so something about, like, lying in the same direction, too, where both people are in on the fraud, I find very romantic, where it's like they have to overcome these, like, antiquated property rules to be together. I just find it very, very charming.
2: <laughs>
1: yes. I, are we going to talk about A Lady Awakens*? Oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> just add it to the bingo. Bingo sheet yeah. people just- following a walk. <laughs>
1: So when you're thinking of, like, Martha from A Lady Awaken and Robin uh, from Unmasked by the Marquis, they both have to commit a certain fraud in order to keep people safe. Like, Martha is keeping kind of a whole household of people safe from an abuser, and Robin is keeping Louisa safe, uh, maybe more cared for than safe. But there's – Clifton is kind of like a big question mark. Like, you don't know what he would do or why – uh with Louisa. Like you don't know if he would take care of her or if he would try to like put her pawn her off on somebody. And that's just kind of like a reality that they have to kind of maybe assume the worst case scenario instead of hope for the best because they don't they, they don't know him that well at all. So yeah, no, I I definitely see that a lot in romance and I think it is very romantic. Uh it's a close second for me because I think uh <laughs> nautical piracy is the most <laughs> romantic crime. Um I think Alistair might as well because he keeps (laughs) thinking about Robin as looking like a pirate and that her hair suddenly makes sense to him (laughs) when she was like dressed like uh, in her pirate outfit uh, at their wedding. Corsair. Corsair. yeah. I was like, that's a pirate. Okay, sorry. It's a a fancy pirate. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I also do want to give a shout out to this line from Alistair's Thoughts because I definitely think it's romantic he took a moment to recalibrate his notions of fraudulence, so they might be more in line with her own.
0: It's very sweet, yes. Um, and I think one more thing about Martha. I like that both so Martha and Robin start off thinking that their fraud is wholly um, like for other people, and they're kind of afraid of the selfish reasons. Like I think Robin's a little afraid to admit that like continuing to live as Robert Selby like means something to her, and like she doesn't want to go back to being Charity Church. And I think Martha is also a little afraid to admit. That she doesn't she doesn't want to go back to living at her brother's house yeah. like that would be a regression for her, and I think they're so afraid of those selfish reasons. But the, their partners are able to show them like the selfish reason is not a selfish is not bad like taking care of yourself and advocating for yourself and like thinking about what you want out of life is not inherently a bad thing like self selfishness is not is not is not the opposite of being kind or being. Um, putting yourself out there for other people. So I like that that's sort of a journey that their partners help them get to for both of them. Mm -hmm. I just think, and it makes for a very, like, sweet romantic sentiments.
2: I do want to give a shout out. Okay, I really like that point. I need to add that before I switch. But I kind of love Keating, the butler. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, and he was a big fan of the fraud, which is why I'm bringing him up in this section. There's this part where um, that's how Clifton... So he shows up at Fenshaw and then he overhears Robin and Keating talking about what Robin should do and Keating is like you're stealing you've always been fine with it like just keep doing that and i was like this is making a lot of sense so listen to the
1: man robin
2: yeah so big man of Keating i hope he gets his own book she there's a line where she's like i don't she'd always suspected him of having like reformist tendencies or something like that or revolutionary tendencies so and I think what we've been talking about, about the two identities that are kind of before Robin, it's like you have the charity, she can either go back to being Charity Church or she can keep going with the Robert Selby. And I like how Sebastian resolves the book where she finds a third identity, her true self. So on that note, we're going to transition to talking a bit more about identity because it is one of the more prevalent themes that Sebastian explores. One thing I noticed was Robin felt really settled in who she was and a lot of the book like we talked about was is kind of focused more on how she expresses that identity, like how she can be herself. So what instances stand out to you?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's nice that, so Alistair I think struggles to grasp someone preferring one area of the world opposed to others because again, we've talked about how his plan is just to move to the country and remove Robin and it's like they're going to live in their like little unit together. But then he thinks about like when he fell in love with Robin, it's like because Robin works so well in a group. It's like he's he's always looking at Robin across rooms and Robin is like the center of attention and thrives in the city. And it's like, again, that's sort of like that selfish reason of like why Robin wanted to come to London. Robin does well in a group. He did well at Cambridge. He sort of fits in there and blossoms at Cambridge. So it makes sense that. Robin is sort of also dealing with this identity of, like, where they grew up in Fenshaw is, like, very remote, Mm -hmm. and that's, like, that's really, like, the Selby aspect of things, like, that is much more, like, Louisa and Robbie, Mm -hmm. um, while Robin seems to be more comfortable around people, that's their, that's, like, a a sort of even different identity than the gender stuff, that, and Alistair has, I think that's almost the thing that Alistair struggles more to understand than Robin's gender identity. It's yeah, like, like, why do you... why would you want to be around other people? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> other people are the worst. And
2: I think Robbie, like, r- the original Rob, uh, Robert Selby, picks up on that, too, of, hey, you go out to Cambridge. You're going to have a great time. And I'm just going to stay here, because this is where I like to be.
0: Yeah, he wants to farm. He's like, I just yeah. I want to be with my cows. What is with
2: all these people who love agriculture? It's like Robert <laughs> and Gilbert and Louisa. <laughs> I'm sure I'm, it's cool. I, I like animals. They're nice.
1: <laughs> I I really got the idea. I does Gilbert really love agriculture or does he really love Louisa and oh, therefore that's loves fair. agriculture? That's, fair. that's kind of what I not to, like, knock Gilbert. Like, no, no, no.
0: He's, yeah, he's going to do great. I great believe plan. in him. <laughs> and he, like, suddenly is much more interested in, like, taking up an occupation once Louise was like, I love thard life. He's like, you know
2: what? So do I. <laughs> he,
0: he was like, I was really considering the rectory
1: before now, but now that you've mentioned it, yes. <laughs> oh. I had something but I all I can think of now is just like Alistair just like I loved that Alistair is like acknowledging because when he notices that Louisa and um Gilbert are flirting with each other he's just like just gonna ignore that if I say anything it's gonna get worse (laughs) which is like I feel like not something I usually see like everyone's trying to like shoehorn their way into it but Alistair's like oh no I'm the nerd older brother like he does not want to hear my opinion (laughs)
0: That's also, cute that Louisa just seems to like sort of like land on Gilbert. Like, yeah. it's like Gilbert's nice, I like Gilbert, he's fun to read. But it's like Louisa is stunning, like, everyone is obsessed with Louisa. Like, in this, it's basically the uh Robin's plan works. Like, he she brings Louisa to London, and everyone's obsessed with Louisa. And Louisa just like I think Gilbert's like the first person she sees, and it's like, yep, this is it. Like, and it, we don't really get their their romance other than like they're just. In love with each other very immediately, and it's it's sweet, but also it's like what Gilbert? She just she's sort of picked Gilbert. It's not like he's the equivalent of like the most handsome man in the room outside of like Louise's eyes. I think he's so it's a good, good secondary romance. I
2: think he's a good match for her though, because she really needs someone to just like make her shine, and he's just like you're great. You're like he's a good support support system. I think, and I really like him. That's like not a knock against him. I think that's like a very very nice thing in a person. Um. I- Chelsea, do you want to touch a bit on gender identity? And then we'll kind of transition to dysphoria.
1: Um, Yeah, sure. So of course, like it's kind of interesting to talk about gender when their language of the time does not match up with the language that we have now. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, Kat Sebastian says in the author's note, like Charity Robin. Robin doesn't mind being referred to as Charity. Robin uses she, her pronouns, but Robin is probably Mm -hmm. non-binary, which is, like, something that I think some people might not know is that non-binary people use all different pronouns. There's not, like, any one way to be non-binary. I'm glad you brought that up because I saw, like, a few reviews that
2: were, like, I was confused that she's a non-binary character but doesn't use they, them pronouns. I was like, what?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's never been required. (laughs) Yeah. You
2: can use any pronoun you want.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of where we kind of are at with Charity's gender. And so like uh, there's your biological sex, which is like what you're born with, like you're assigned with at birth, but your gender identity does not necessarily match up with your biological sex. So that kind of gets me into uh, I do want to talk about gender dysphoria, which is something that Robin describes in the text. So gender dysphoria is when your gender identity does not align with your assigned sex at birth. And Robin's horror and dismay at the prospect of having to wear dresses and to kind of have to go on, live not necessarily being charity, but like living as charity again, uh, kind of reflects that. I saw someone on TikTok talk about Unmasked by the Marquis as queer progress with the girl in breeches and Hoyden heroin tropes. And I'm personally not quite comfortable making that call as it kind of implies that there's always a direct line between cisgender tomboyishness. So like, for example, Lillian in one, It Happened One Autumn by Lisa klepis And this sort of cisgender tomboyishness can be praised or derided depending on who you ask. Uh, and gender nonconformity, which a lot of people are still really largely uncomfortable with today. So while I don't think there is linear progression, uh, because that seems a bit too neat for me, I do think you can draw comparisons. So I was thinking about Velvet Song by Jude Devereux when I read this, uh, for a few different reasons. So in Velvet Song, Alex, the heroine, is in hiding because an earl is trying to kill her after she embarrassed him. She disguises herself as a squire and starts working for Rain. He is attracted to her at points while thinking she's a young man, and unlike Alistair, who is comfortable with himself, Rain experiences gay panic. He gets angry with himself and with Alex because of his feelings. There's a running joke in Velvet Song that Alex's disguise as a squire is too good. She often thinks to herself, surely someone will notice that I'm a woman now, and gets depressed when that's not the case. Everybody is fooled by her disguised. Uh, I feel comfortable saying that Deborah was making a joke of this and not intending to make any sort of commentary on gender dysphoria. But I do think it's so interesting that a quote unquote girl in breeches book kind of does this in a roundabouts way. What Alex is experiencing, the embarrassment, the depression, the annoyance at not being seen the way she sees herself, is gender dysphoria Cisgender people are so used to kind of compartmentalizing trans and gender non-conforming feelings and issues into its own separate category because they see themselves the default, that they don't recognize uh, the common experiences we all have. Alex and Robin both experience gender dysphoria just in different ways. Good point. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, I don't really have much to add. I just... Yeah, I think that's a good, good point. I'm glad we touched on it.
1: Yeah, I think for me, I was just kind of a little, I want, I know that there's kind of a a tendency to kind of like look at historical romance from the past to reference modern day. But like, I do think when you get into like, referencing like characters who are like canonically cisgender to talk about to talk about characters who are gender non-conforming, it does get a little bit messier. Like, I think there are, like, some implications that you might not intend doing that. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I kind of wanted to point out and also see that even though that is the case, they do reference each other. They do kind of have commonalities that you might not necessarily note in the beginning.
0: I haven't read that many Girl in Breaches books, but most of the ones I've read, I feel like the um, heroine is living part of the book as a sort of like male disguise and then part of the book as herself and so like uh, there's often this tension where it's like she's becoming more intimate in her male disguise but the hero knows her as a woman as well and so there's it's like the the, I often have trouble buying those because it's like the idea of meeting someone who's just like wearing pants now and you don't recognize them I find a little hard to believe but and this book is so different than that because Robin is living completely there is no there aren't scenes where she's charity, except much later in the book when she's doing it out of necessity in order to protect Louisa. Like when they're on the elopement, she as she puts dresses on in um, order so that she can nurse Louisa and be allowed to be in the room with her in the the when they impose on the farmers. Like and it it's not it's not to trick Alistair. Um So just the, the structure of the the plot is so different than the Girl in Breaches books where the, she's living as a woman but is gaining certain access as her male counterpart. So it, it just it's built out differently, even from like a, a form perspective.
2: Yeah, I like that you brought up when she nurses Louisa back to health
0: and that part when she's wearing the dress feels like the disguise. Mm-hmm. So. Right. She has she's, she's she's and that's the example of where she's gaining access that she wouldn't normally have yes. as her like as herself yeah. is because they, they wouldn't let Robin in pants be the person who's like alone with Louisa taking care of her. They would hire somebody else. Right. We're gonna
2: to switch to talking about how people use historical accuracy as a criticism, especially as it relates to marginalized communities.
1: So our friend Mel, who goes by Page Mel on both TikTok and YouTube, said in their review of An Extraordinary Union by Alyssa Cole that quote-unquote historical accuracy is often an inappropriate lens to view historical romance written about marginalized communities. To me, this is because when it's used this way, the historical accuracy complaint directly states that it's impossible to find love under oppression and that communities who are understudied, whose experiences have been sort of swept under the rug or relayed solely by outsiders, have no business having a happily ever after. There's also this idea that historical accuracy is objective rather than subjective, A lot of Regency historical accuracy we get is from Georgette Hare, who is the sort of H.P. Lovecraft of historical romance, deeply influential over the genre, but also irrevocably tied to white supremacy. Uh, When I say I don't care about historical accuracy, this is mostly what I mean in that even with a moderate knowledge of history, that mostly stems from doing research after reading historical romance novels. I understand that there's no true objective stance and then a lot of uh, stances do pull from hair and her ilk as a reference point so we've talked a bit about having a whole episode that touches on the concept of historical accuracy and historical romance because there's a lot to say here uh but i wonder if you have any thoughts you can share about it here too
0: yeah so with historical accuracy i think about so I feel like so often historical accuracy is weaponized. It's like I've not seen this in another historical book before. Like I've not seen it in another historical romance novel because like how I feel like most people who are reading these books, like I've read a lot more historical romance novels than I have read history books. And like Chell said, my a lot of my history reading is responsive to historical romance novels rather than the other way around. But also I think it's, it's easy to think that like if something's ever been depicted before it never happened, but I think it's easier, it's it's a better bet to assume most people, most experiences that people have now, people have experienced before. Mm-hmm. Like there have been gender nonconforming people forever. There have been interracial relationships forever. Like there are, and there's also a lot of documented history that just doesn't get depicted. Um, this comes up in, in race a lot that like the race of people in Regency England was much more diverse than 99% of Either Regency movies or Regency books, that and it's it's like much more likely that you're a person of color in London than you are a duke. But think about how many dukes we have in historical romance. So those things where it's like you think about like the base knowledge of what you have. It, if that base knowledge is historical romance, it, it you're not necessarily basing things actually on historical accuracy. You're sort of basing them on received wisdom. Um, And I think that's really an easy like fallacy to fall into.
2: Uh, There's this essay by Laura Vivanco called "Historical Accuracy, Racism, Courtney Milan, and the Duke Who Didn't Conform to Genre Norms." In the Duke Who Didn't, one of the main characters, Jeremy, is a half Chinese duke, and Vivanco challenges readers on what conventions they call historically accurate. Like, what's more likely? Possibly having a half-Chinese duke or the inn you go to only having one room or one bed. Like, what you're picking
1: and choosing to call historically accurate is suspect. Yeah, there's, um, Vanessa Riley has uh, an essay in the Washington Post that's kind of along the same lines. Um, and she points to the author's note in historical romance as something that... Uh, authors of color might have to use more stringently to push back against claims that their books aren't historically accurate because they're oftentimes very 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 well researched uh, but just because like some folks might not know the history or might not be familiar with it they assume that it's not true so it's kind of like uh, accuracy is a Accuracy has a very specific lens, and that's something that was also kind of interesting when I was, because uh, you know, Cat's uh, Passion has an author's note in this book, and one of the main citations for kind of gender nonconforming people was James Barry. So James Barry was assigned female at birth and lived as a man. He was born in Cork, Ireland, in the late 1700s, and then became a military surgeon. He didn't want uh, he didn't want anybody to like unclothe him after he died he wanted to be buried as a man but they didn't they went against his wishes and that's kind of when it was revealed that he was assigned female at birth so you can you can't say that definitively that james barry is trans but you can't also not definitively say that he wasn't either and so kind of like the lens of who he was is told differently through different people there are historians that refer to or historians or biographers that refer to him as a woman which i think is uncomfortable uh, so it's just kind of like historical accuracy is basically who you're getting it from there's no objective stance and i think like especially if you're like part of the majority it you should be really cautious about using that
0: yeah for sure and like with if I've been thinking about books that we call like wallpapery, it seems like if you're if the couple is both white characters and a man and a woman and the book is historically accurate, it sort of gets affectionately called wallpapery, where like I'm thinking like Tessadere books, which I've been known to in, enjoy. I've like read Tessadere and enjoy Tessadere. But those books are very wallpapery where the phrase to describe like the the, the only thing historical about it is the wallpaper, because the, the plots are very like rom-com and are very similar to like contemporary romance. A lot of things in those books happen that are ridiculous and historically inaccurate, but that's not. Uh, it, it's an affectionate sort of historical inaccuracy that she gets to claim, and her people mention in reviews rather than like, oh, this is this is a disservice to the genre because it's historically inaccurate. Like, she has a whole series where four women inherit castles. Like right. That's the premise <laughs> of the series. Is that four women independently and in, like inherit castles just for no reason like (laughs) um and it's like what is what is the basis for this oh it's like well it's fun it's fun for a woman to inherit a castle and have this have these property rights and like what are the implications of that but it's not it's not based in like oh here are all the times that women inherited castles randomly so it it, it's you can see that this is like if you if you dig into this at all you see that the the phrase is obviously weaponized against queer stories and stories about people of color in the genre, because it's it's not, I don't see it nearly as often when it comes up with heterosexual white couples. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good point.
2: Let's switch to something a little lighter. We've been talking about some <laughs> heavy <laughs> yeah. stuff. We will, like Chelsea said, do a historical accuracy episode in the future, because there's a lot to dig into. But Yeah. Chels.
1: So my favorite Goodreads list, which was compiled by an angel, is called Starchy Hero Gets Unstarched. And God, does that fit Alistair's journey in this book to a T. I think what I love about this type of character is that it's a different breed of grumpy sunshine. Like, the starchy character has a sort of hard moral line that needs to get shaken up a bit. Uh, What do you think is the appeal for these types of characters?
2: I I think just... (laughs) them coming undone a bit there's just something kind of romantic about that like they come undone for this one person like change their point of view i i don't know i love
0: it though <laughs> and it feels like it's kind of like what we expect from a historical romance like someone is like attached to the propriety and the rules like it's like if you're reading historical romance i think you kind of want someone To be beholden to the society like the the vague capital s society that we refer to like society wouldn't accept this um society wouldn't want them to do this so it's like nice when one person is sort of attached to that and then they have to like overcome it for love because like what's a better reason to uh, come undone than like falling in love with someone who's kind of a renegade because i also like your comparison to like grump versus sunshine because i don't know if i would call robin that sunshiny but like alistair would alistair would be like robin is my son like robin is like I, I live and die by robin robin is not necessarily like the most optimistic person is not like like blithe like blithely happy all the time like robin is going through stuff that has to it, it's not just that sort of like trite optimist but alistair would it thinks of him or it thinks of her that way so it, it's very it, it's very appropriate that it's like this sort of like a little complication of the the grumpy sunshine
2: emma i want you to read the novella by cecilia grant with andrew blackshear oh my gosh just like these are the rules and the rules are the rules
1: it is he's like somehow like when i read that i was like that's where martha gets it from oh my god <laughs> <laughs> andrew blackshear everybody
2: What's the name of his love interest again? Lucy. Lucy, okay. I love, and Lucy in that book, she's always just like, okay, but why, why do we have to do this (laughs) now? And he's just like having a malfunction, like, but it's the rules.
0: (laughs) I do like the Black Cheers. It's like an iterative, like, okay, like first, first Martha has to learn to break the rules and then Will and then Nick. And it's like all of you, like independently of them all they're like one of us has to follow the rules it's like actually you you're all good yeah
1: the rules are dumb yes
0: don't
2: follow the rules <laughs> why do you think Chelsea starchy hero gets unstarched what is the appeal
1: okay i <laughs> me with my sweeping insights i'm like i don't uh so my favorite like one of my favorite Historical romances is um slightly dangerous by Mary Balak um because Wolfric is the sturtiest character I think I've ever read, ever. <laughs> like he literally has thoughts like this is not how people should behave, and like <laughs> over and over and over again. And that is like a true grumpy sunshine. Like his mm-hmm. love interest is like, she's. Yeah so wild like there were parts where it was like it's a bit much girl right, like, <laughs> climbing trees and
0: she's like rolling down hills and yeah he, he also gets so mad that he falls in love with her he's like this is the most embarrassing thing that has ever happened to i love life. that
1: like,
2: that's like, like mr Knight. i've done this that's like mr nightly where he's just like i can't believe i fell forever
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was just like oh now i have to be around her more and i love it so much but also i cannot handled, the way she behaves. I can't believe this is correct. Like, it's just like, it's so perfect. And like, Alistair definitely has that, like, (laughs) there are like multiple moments where Alistair is like, why am I showing up here? No reason. Robin's here. I don't know. It's, (laughs) it's we're just rolling with it. It's fine. Whatever. He's definitely, he, he definitely like catches the case a little bit more like directly, I think, than like Wolfric does uh, Mm -hmm. and then maybe Andrew as well but I really enjoy that because it's quite comedic Mm -hmm. I think there was a point earlier Emma where you said that everybody is obsessed with Louisa and I had to pause for a second because I was just like we spend so much time in Alistair's head that I was just like (laughs) no it's Robin like we're obsessed with Robin like Robin's who we think about just because like (laughs) Alice uh, has like oh my god so many of the most romantic lines Um, but yeah I think I think the appeal for me now that I am like meandered about it for like (laughs) several minutes is that I do love this idea that we like our morality is very flexible (laughs) with the people that we love (laughs) and that is um and that's kind of like how Uh, That is definitely, that's the epitome of starchy hero gets unstarched. Like you have Mm -hmm. this, like, you have this firm line, you have this starched collar, you have this way of life that you've committed to and that nothing has been able to shake. But it's just like that one person that just like fucks it up mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now i want alistair to meet Wolfric because i feel like we didn't in alistair's book like we don't see anyone outrank him and he's like very aware like he sort of wields his like marquess status like Wolfric does his dukedom and i feel like if alistair met Wolfric, alistair would be like starstruck but also like he he would not be able to get robin in line in, pre- in preparation for the meeting like robin would have <laughs> <laughs> be like i'm not it's, it's a duke like it's fine <laughs>
2: Uh, I think this is a good point for us to wrap things up. Uh, I hope everyone questions their morality
0: from this episode a little bit. Commit Uh, some crimes. Yeah, do some crimes. (laughs) Yeah, just some romantic property fraud, I think. Like, why not? That's not legal advice. But if you can make it romantic, why not? 100% Uh, a
2: lawyer. That's not legal advice. So when I was just like, (laughs) do crimes. (laughs) (laughs)
0: can i give legal advice (laughs) take to the high seas (laughs) so thank you so much for listening to reformed rakes if you enjoy the podcast you can find bonus content on our patreon at patreon.com slash reformed rakes you can also follow us on twitter and instagram for show updates the username for both is at reformed rakes thank you again and we'll see you next time